First, I want to circle back to something you said, which is when you were doing consulting in Boston for the company out there, you talked about, I think you called it millennial spin, putting millennial spin on a product portfolio. What did did that mean? I'm sure a lot of our listeners have this vision of what millennials eat versus (laughs) what their grandparents ate. But what did it mean to you and the folks you were working for? To me, it means that... um, you want to bring in some some unique, whether it's flavor profile or form factor, to an existing platform. This is C2C, where we cover innovation in the food and CBG business from conception to consumption. Welcome to the podcast, everybody. Today, my guest is Sebastian Nava, who is a chef and R&D innovator, most recently with... Boulder Brands, later Pinnacle Foods, later Conagra, where he's worked on a number of natural and organic products. And previously, he was also associate editor at America's Test Kitchen. Sebastian, welcome. Thanks so much, Gary. It's great to be here. So let's jump into it. So why don't you walk our listeners through how you originally got into this industry? What attracted you to it? And why you were excited to be in it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so when I was a child, actually, is how this all started. And um, I was from a household where my mom, you know, bless her heart, um, and in her defense, she was a very busy woman. She was helping my dad run a business and all these sorts of things. Um, so she didn't find a lot of time to cook at home. There wasn't a lot of home-cooked meals. We ate out a lot. And um, as a result, I was a pretty overweight kid and I was pretty unhappy. And so when I went away to college, there was this moment where I had to be like, how am I gonna feed myself, right? What am I gonna fuel my body with? Am I gonna eat frozen burritos and ramen noodles um, like all my friends are doing? Or am I going to figure out how to prepare some food? And that's really how all this started. I I started teaching myself how to cook from cookbooks. Uh, Mark Bittman's How to Cook Everything, fantastic thick volume of of cooking basics, and that's really where um, I got started. And it was just through experimenting and, and you know, kind of self-teaching um, in the kitchen. And through that change, I kind of call this a, a conversion moment to real food. You know, I started paying attention to what was going in my body. I started reading um, ingredient statements on, on food packages and start really paying attention to the food that was fueling me. And through that change, um, I got so much healthier and I got so much healthier, uh, happier, and I kind of gained also the social skill of food that I could share with people um, and knowledge, even if I wasn't cooking, but going out, I could explain food to people. And um, it's kind of this beautiful skill set that's really changed my life. And so um, my career is all about bringing that conversion to real food to the rest of the world and doing it kind of on the largest scale possible. And so from there, I decided that I needed to get some formal education. So I went to the Culinary Institute of America, um, their Hyde Park, not their Hyde Park campus, but their, um, their campus out in California at Greystone. It's in the wine country up in Napa Valley. Really, nice. Really beautiful. It kind of looks like Hogwarts. Um, <laughs> really fantastic. And kind of learned those cooking basics and um, to really developed myself even further. I I got a job working there as a chocolatier. I worked as a butcher um, locally, um, butchering pasture-raised beef that was uh, coming straight from the farm. 
And uh, I worked in a fine dining restaurant that had one Michelin star. And um, I just did all sorts of things, everything I could in kind of the restaurant food service industry to really get that, um, just that breadth of experience where I could say, I've got a lot of knowledge about just about anything. Um, and so that kind of started all of this. And I knew that uh, throughout my career, I'd want to find a way to scale that up. Um, and so, you know, publishing was a fantastic way to start doing that. And that's one of the reasons I um, went to America's Test Kitchen is because I absolutely love their work and the integrity behind their work and kind of that scientific um, approach that they take to cooking. And I knew that could help propel me on this journey to um, start sharing with the world, right? And so if I'm in a restaurant, I'm feeding at most a couple hundred people a night, right? That's it. And maybe they're eating fantastically and maybe I've made some sort of small impact in their life. Um, but that's about all I can do there. You go step into publishing, a really great book will sell 10,000, 20,000 copies, right? And that's 10,000, 20,000 home cooks that are cooking for their families and their loved ones. And um, so, you know, you can see how that scales up very, very quickly. And uh, eventually working into CPG um, has helped me to scale up that effort even further. So what was it, what was it like working at America's Test Kitchen? Because I really enjoy the show on PBS. My wife buys the magazine. Yeah. Uh, I picked up on tips. My favorite tip is use vodka and pie crust, if you're familiar uh -huh, with that one. Absolutely. It's a great tip. Helps keep it tender. Yeah, and it evaporates, right? Yeah. So it makes it flakier. Absolutely. So what, what was it like working there? I mean, was it like 80 hours a week? Was it cr uh, crazy and <laughs> deadlines and all that kind of stuff? You know, it's not um, that crazy in terms of work hours. It's intense in terms of the amount of work that you're doing in a given day because uh, I was on the cookbooks team, publishing cookbooks, and we did everything from paleo to Mexican books and gluten-free and everything in between. And so um, we would be on a tight timeline. So you would be testing um, a minimum of three, a maximum of probably five, six recipes a day. And uh, also attending everything that, every cutting that your coworkers are doing on that same team. So if there's three other people working on the same book, you might attend at least 15 different cuttings in that day. And so you're kind of bouncing back and forth between these tastings and your own work and trying to juggle all that. Um, and all the subsequent timelines. Um, because obviously, you know, it's an industry like any other, and so there are deadlines. We have to turn the book in at some point so it can go to the printer, so it can be assembled and printed and shipped and promoted and all those sorts of things. <coughs> and so you have to meet those deadlines. At the same time, um, still applying that really um, intense scientific rigor that America's Test Kitchen is known for um, to everything that you're doing. Um, so it's definitely a balance, and you have to understand the testing process um, in order to make sure you're being efficient with your time. So you want to try, you know, five, seven variables at a given time so that you can get through this as fast as possible and without having to come back and say, oh, we need to test this one again. Um, so that's the kind of intensity that it is working there, but it's uh, kind of stimulating as well because you're in this kitchen surrounded by other teams that are doing the exact same thing. And there are people that are, you know, working across from you on a completely different project, completely different book, different publication. 
and uh, they're making amazing discoveries. They're testing really crazy things. You're laughing at whatever they think is going on, you know, because they just they throw everything at the wall sometimes. And some, um, you know, often they come out with great results. Um, but there are plenty of things that don't work, and that's part of the scientific process, right? It it, se- it seems like a really high integrity place. It seems like almost like the consumer reports of, you know, here's recipes that work. Here's what doesn't work. Here's kitchen tools that work. Here's kitchen tools that we don't recommend. Absolutely. So I'm sure you know, to get to that point, there's a lot of failure that has to happen, right? Um, So we fail so you don't have to. That's the whole thought philosophy. So there's a lot of failing that goes on before we can get to something that's going to be consistent and going to work regularly. So the other part of that that's really fascinating, actually, is doing a lot of testing with readers, um, we'll develop a recipe, then it goes out to the readers. Um, they have a database of, you know, 1,500 more um, readers that'll test the recipes at home. So if I'm working on an electric stove in Colorado that, that's at elevation, um, hopefully that recipe is also going to work for someone in New England who's working at sea level, um, you know, and everyone across the country. And so that was actually kind of my first introduction to really consumer testing. You know, as we look at it in CPG, it's the same, same similar process. Um, so trying to pull, foolproof things by testing them with enough people by at the end, you're going to have a bulletproof recipe that's going to work for everyone. You got any crazy stories or any favorite stories from America's Test Kitchen? Oh, my goodness. That's a great question. So... When America's Test Kitchen started working in the gluten-free space, there weren't a lot of other people that had explored that space yet, especially on that level. There were a lot of maybe hippie bakers in Vermont that were exploring it. There were people that were, you know, adding different things to to uh, different kind of starches, rice starches, uh, oat flour, those sorts of things to try and get to gluten-free products. But for us, nothing in that world was really on the level that we would expect for America's Test Kitchen. And so that was kind of the great unknown. And so we started uh, just from the ground up testing everything we could find. And really, you know, unusual things happen because you can't just take flour, wheat flour, out of a bread recipe. It doesn't work, right? Starches melt. They um, do all sorts of things. And as a consumer, you don't have access to all the crazy um, starches that we have in the industry, right? There's not pre-gel or any of those sorts of things. There's only a handful out there. And, and today, there's a lot more available than there was back then also to the consumer. You know, it was really hard when we started to buy xanthan gum at the grocery store. We recommended buying it online because it was that hard to find. Uh, now, most grocery stores have it. So, We started from ground zero, and um, we would just take out wheat flour and put in rice flour and see what happens, right? A lot of of (laughs) bad-tasting recipes. Absolutely. There'd be loaves of bread you would cut into, and they they look beautiful on the outside. They'd completely hollow in the middle. (laughs) And um, everything from, you know, cookies completely collapsing and and turning into these giant amorphous uh, like crepe looking things to um, rock hard cookies and everything in between. So, you know, whenever you're venturing it out into that unknown, you just never know what you're going to get. And uh, that was kind of the fun part of being 
there in those early stages of of looking at a new food trend in that space. So how did you how'd you make the jump from editor at America's Test Kitchen to getting into the CPG business? Yeah, so part of my thought process um, was to go back to that scalability, right? Because I knew that 10,000, 20,000 people would buy a cookbook. And now it's um, now it's 100,000 if it's a frozen entree. Right, right. Or a million. Hmm. Right. And so uh, that was part of my thought process is how do I keep growing this? How do I improve my impact? So I started working with a company out in Boston uh, that was doing consulting work. And um, we were kind of independent consultants, we would develop these strategic partnerships. And um, we would help these really, really big companies um, to help develop culinary forward products and to kind of bring a more millennial oriented spin to their portfolio. And so they would hire a chef and a scientist side by side, and those people would work together to help um, help develop these new products. And we would do really rapid iterations and um, do really fun and interesting and unique things. Through that, you know, um, it's one thing to um, work within a larger company and help pull a larger company. It's a big wheel, right? And pulling that big wheel takes a lot of effort and it can only move so fast. Um, especially if there's only a couple of influences there that are trying to pull that big machine that direction. Um, but it really got my appetite wet for what CPG could really offer. And so when I saw that um, Boulder Brands was hiring, I knew all of their products, particularly Udi's Gluten-Free and Glutino, because of my work with America's Test Kitchen on gluten-free cookbooks because we had tested all their products mm. right and all the breads and so i knew oh udi's is the best gluten-free bread on the market and glutino has the best pretzels on the market so naturally when i saw those pop up i was like that's perfect that's where i want to be that's what i want to do so i made the jump and and came out to to boulder from uh from boston and um I've had the luxury of working on a portfolio of five natural food brands um, Udi's gluten-free, Glutino, uh, Gardein, which is plant-based proteins grown mm -hmm. like gangbusters, of course. Um, Evol, which is clean convenience, natural frozen, and Earth Balance, which is uh, plant-based spreads, um, nut butters, and a whole host of other things. So I, I want to talk about Boulder Brands, but first I want to circle back to something you said, sure. which is when you were doing consulting in Boston for the company out there, you talked about, I think you called it millennial spin, putting yeah. millennial spin on a product portfolio. What did, what did that mean? I, I'm sure a lot of our listeners have this vision of what millennials eat versus <laughs> what their grandparents ate. But what did it mean to you and the folks you were working yeah. for? To me, it means that um, you want to bring in some, some unique, whether it's flavor profile or form factor, to an existing platform. Right, you need to be grounded in familiarity in some way or another. Um, so, say we're going to develop—I don't know. Let's say we're going to develop a new bread. That bread um, needs to be grounded in reality in in one of two ways: either the form or the flavor. Right? Um, 
And so you could take a bread and say, uh, this is going to be a sandwich bread, but we're going to do a Moroccan spice sandwich bread. Okay. So we have a unique flavor profile, but a familiar platform. It's all about pairing that foreign and the familiar to appeal to a consumer. If you um, say, okay, we're going to do a Moroccan spice uh, puff bread. What is that? Right now you've lost your consumer because you don't even know where you are. Um, and even to say, you know, Moroccan spice may be a little bit far out there, but it's about balancing those. Um, millennials want to try new experiences. They want to be introduced to new experiences and flavors and textures and formats. And um, but you can only go so far before you've completely lost them, before you've completely lost them. So it's so it's evolution, not revolution. Yeah. Is maybe the success to launching new products in CPG. Absolutely. Absolutely. And um, that way, too, you can bring on um, the older generation a little bit as well as they start to see these younger kids trying it. And um, they know what something is going on there. Um, they're willing to adventure out and they'll come along that journey with you as well. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like your other take on millennials is give them something new. Give them something new to try because they like to try new yeah. things. Absolutely. Absolutely. And they want to know that that's coming from a uh, reliable source to someone that is culinary minded, someone who has a chef background or a brand that represents something they do know and love. Um, and so you've got like Sour Patch Kids, right, that are starting to come out with all these fun uh, flavor factors and different forms and all sorts of things. But it's a brand that they already know and trust and they're getting experimental on top of it and bringing something new to the table. So at Boulder Brands, what were some of your favorite projects to be working on? So when I got there, we were in the middle of um, a complete overhaul on the, the sandwich bread. And Udi's was a, uh, in a fantastic position in that they came into gluten-free really, really early. And uh, they kind of um, grew out organically through people discovering gluten-free and uh, through people wanting to live a grain-free lifestyle. People, um, people with serious celiac. You know, a lot of them had celiac, serious celiac disease, <laughs> <laughs> tongue twister, yeah. um, but a lot of them don't. And we actually find that consistently across the board. If you look at Gardein, which is the plant-based protein platform, um, it's only about 6% of those consumers that are actually vegan. And so you've got a ton of vegetarians. You've got a ton of flexitarians that um, just looking for something different. Maybe they're trying to make their health better. Maybe they're trying to look for something that's a little bit better for the environment. Everyone kind of has their own reasons. Um, but very few of them are actually that diehard consumer, right? And so for both, um, you know, both Gardein and Udi's, it's important to respect that really hardcore consumer, the person that does have celiac disease, while being able to apply to anybody that's, you know, just looking to maybe try gluten-free for once or um, that just wants to cut back on, on wheat in their life. Um, and so we have to appeal to all those. And um, they did a really fantastic job of that. Um, but there was kind of a time where um, no one wanted to touch the bread because it was their kind of flagship item. They were the number one bread in gluten-free, but it kind of fell behind some of the competition that we were starting to see in the space as people were innovating with new ingredients 
with um, new claims around ancient grains and all sorts of different things that we're seeing in the market today. So it was kind of, um, it was still sitting on top in the marketplace, but it was starting to, to lose its ground and lose its competitive edge. And um, there were a lot of people that were diehard Udi's fans. And so we wanted to respect them and we wanted to upgrade um, to something that we knew we could make that would be even better, um, given all the new technologies, given the new ingredients that are available to us now and gluten-free. Um, and so it's kind of going from that, you know, Wild West time I was talking about in gluten-free where no one knew what was going on and trying to bring Udi's into that new generation. And so um, working with our bakery team, um, they developed a really fantastic new um, sandwich bread. And it's um, soft, it's white, it's pliable. You know, a lot of the old gluten-free bread was kind of brittle and dry and crumbly. You would bite into a sandwich and it would fall apart on mm -hmm. you. Um, and it toasted really well. And it was um, really kind of a pioneering step into where we're taking Udi's next to be able to explore all these new um, fantastic trends that are happening and uh, still represent Udi's in the best way possible. So let, let's talk about the T word trends yeah. because it's, it's, it's such a big deal, whether it's gluten-free, um, plant-based protein, organic, lots of other things from, from, from where you sit, having worked in CPG, how do you, how do you figure out if something's a fad versus a trend? So that's a great question. I hate the word fad. I don't use it in my um, in my dialect, um, I think of micro trends and macro trends. And um, to me, you see big macro trends because a fat is a bad word, right? There's also always a negative connotation to that, mm -hmm. that, oh, we don't want to get into a fad because it's going to die off. But if we can um, launch an LTO or something and take advantage of this micro trend, maybe we can do really well for a year, two years on it if we're lucky. And then we'll move on to something else and that's okay. You know, but we can still do really well for the company at that time. Um, but if you want something that's going to have more longevity, and obviously there are a lot of kind of cost analysis you have to do on, on those sorts of things. Um, you want to look at macro trends and the larger trends in the micro, in the, in the, um, the larger trends in, uh, in the marketplace. And so uh, there, there are a lot of huge ones right now. Um, you know, I think low carb is a macro trend. A micro micro trend associated with that is going to be keto. Uh, it's going to be um, Atkins, right? You might see some people associate paleo with that. Um, also, veg veg replacement. That's a huge macro trend. Everyone's trying to get um, into veg replacement. Everyone wants more vegetables in their life, right? Mm -hmm. We all know that's a good thing. So if you can get rid of grains or anything else, sugar, and add vegetables, I'm going to be happy. Right, so veg replacement is huge. A micro trend in veg replacement is going to be cauliflower crust. Uh, a lot of cauliflower crust right now. People are doing really well with it. So to me, anywhere you see macro trends, especially if you see uh, macro trends coming together in really big places, um, then you're going to see a lot of strength and a lot of opportunity there for innovation. So doing vegetable-based um, pizza crusts, uh, and I think we're going to see that expand into bakery items and all sorts of different things, um, is a huge opportunity right now because 
Um, you're reducing the carbs, right? That macro trend, and you're also doing veg replacement at the same time. So um, Udi's just launched a sweet potato crust that we're doing. So adding more vegetables in, you also get more phytonutrients, micronutrients, fiber associated with that. And then also, you know, it's uh, replacing some of the grains and gluten-free as well. Um, so that's a big opportunity there. And so maybe fiber is a macro trend too. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, fiber almost under the radar, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. You know, fiber is kind of an old claim. Like my parents used to really get stuff with added fiber, I think. Or, you know, that was kind of the big deal back in the 90s. And now when you think about, oh, legumes, legumes are awesome. And there's all sorts of benefits of garbanzo beans and fava beans and all these sorts of things. Um, there's fiber in all those and in vegetables as well. So we're seeing growth in all of those things, but fiber claims and calling out fiber, I think is is um, something that's not as trending as, as, um, as strongly as these kind of added vegetable uh, or pulses, legumes, those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. So you've talked to us about some of the projects you've worked on some of the macro trends, as you put it, or micro trends that you've tried to take advantage of, what are some of the biggest challenges you've hit? Well, I think the biggest challenge in the industry today is that you have a lot of small players, right, that are doing really fantastic, really innovative and interesting work that are vying for uh, acquisition. And so they're not as interested in, um, in their margins They're not as interested in long-term viability. They're interested in the here and now. How do I get my distribution up? That's the number one thing for them. How do I get my distribution up? It doesn't matter if I'm going to make money on it or not. It just matters how many stores I'm in, how many people are buying my product. So um, if you come into some of those brands like we did with Evol, I came into uh, Boulder Brands right after they were acquired by Pinnacle. And looking at the Evol portfolio, um, there were things that are losing money. Every time you sell one, you'd lose money. How good of a business proposition is that? Mm. It's not a good one, right? Then uh, after these acquisitions occur, of course, these larger companies are going to be um, margin-driven and mindful of their margin. And so they're going to do as much as they can to make that product profitable. And because they're ultimately they want to deliver value to their, their stockholders, Right. And of course, you know, that's, that's what they do. That's the game they're in. Um, but when you're in a large company and you're trying to compete with those, with those smaller companies, it's easy to say, oh, well, they're doing this gluten-free bread that's also paleo and is shelf-stable and um, is grain-free and egg-free and allergen-free and keto and everything else in the world. Why can't we do that? That's the number one question you get. Why can't we do that? Mm-hmm. And it's like, I'd be happy to make that product for you. It's going to be a fantastic product, but you're not going to make any money off of it. Or your margin is going to be so small that it's not going to be worth it to you. Isn't, isn't there a different problem, too, with that path, which is just slapping more claims on the label? Is that really what companies want to do for long-term building of a brand? Don't they want to, you know, I think of great brands like RX Bar and Dave's mm-hmm. Killer Bread. Yeah. There's a story there. There's a mission Absolutely. there. And just slapping one more claim on a label, isn't, isn't that a bad way to go? 
You know, I, I 100% agree. And especially today where there's so many people that so when there's so many people that want so many different things that it's really easy to end up in this space where you want to be something to everybody and you end up being something to nobody. Mm. So, yes, claims are very important. They do help drive consumer perceptions. You want a couple of key claims on your packaging, but when it becomes um, to the point where you're keto, paleo, plant-based, vegan, gluten-free, non-GMO, organic, and everything in between, all of a sudden there's no identity anymore. And um, those core consumers aren't even going to know that your product is for them because you've lost their claim that they're looking for in this ocean of random claims that may or may not add value to them as a consumer. So you talked a little bit about um, perhaps somebody saying, hey, make me a product that does all these things. I think of that maybe as like a top-down mandate, which mm -hmm. doesn't sound like it's the best. Talk to us about collaboration. What are your views about collaboration with different departments when you're yeah. when you're doing the initial work and then on through product development, you know, marketing, finance, et cetera. Absolutely. So that's kind of why I was brought into Boulder Brands was to be a key player uh, working across the different departments because they had isolated people in R&D, they had isolated people in marketing, and isolated people in finance and sales. And so when I came in, I started working with the marketing folks at very early stages saying, hey, what can we do with this brand? Or I saw this thing and it's really fantastic and I think we should do it. Um, or there's this trend that maybe it fits in something, maybe it doesn't. You know, maybe you guys can figure out where it fits. Um, or at least, you know, be interested. <laughs> you know, at least spark some sort of curiosity. And um, so that's when we started really collaborating as a team and um, started looking at what our pipeline was going to look at, look like what our new innovation was going to look like. And I would bring their feedback to R&D. Um, and so R&D would say, well, how come we can't do this? Or what's going on with this? And I'd say, here are the reasons. You know, it's not the perfect fit for our consumers. It violates our brand, guardrails, um, so on and so forth. And then they start thinking in that marketing mentality too, right? To bring that consumer perception in to their thought process. And... So um, they could start honing their ideas and their innovation. Um, and so there's a lot of efficiencies that come from that. And then I would also play a role with sales where I would go to <coughs> sales meetings. Uh, we would also host sales meetings with everyone from Whole Foods to Walmart, Target, um, Sprouts, everyone and anyone, and um, would help sell in those products. And um, help, I would help present and tell the story of the product from the R&D perspective of where it's come from, why we think it's of value to them and to their consumers, and uh, then take feedback. And um, to have that kind of conduit from sales, from the customer, right to R&D without playing telephone, without seeing emails, um, and having someone in the room that can also ask questions and say, well, what if we did this? Or um, yes, we can do that, or no, we can't. You know, or we'll take that into consideration for the next round of innovation, whatever it is. Um, having that direct line um, opened us up a lot and freed us to 
um, really focus on making the best products we could while being really uh, responsive to all of our all, all of our business partners. So get away from the bench from time to time. Go yeah. mingle with those other departments. Collaborate Absolutely. with them. Absolutely. And what about uh, what about consumers and sensory and and all of those uh, types of things? Any any words of wisdom for for our listeners on those? Yeah, I think that um, what you really have to do with consumer insights is to try and interpret what's going on uh, for the consumer and really put yourself in their shoes. A lot of times you just never know what you're going to get from consumer feedback. And there are definitely weaknesses also to consumer feedback. Um, often they'll tell you things that they'll tell you something in a, in a focus group that they'd never tell you or actually behave that way um, as a consumer. So you have to take what they say with a grain of salt and you have to evaluate what, what value and what amount of weight you're actually going to put back behind what they're saying. And, you know, similar to what we talked about earlier, if you take in all of those inputs, um, you might end up with a product that's not a perfect fit for your brand and for your consumers. And so sometimes you do have to make the decision, okay, we're, we're not going to value this feedback as strongly as we're going to value this feedback. And um, I think that's really important to... Um, to be able to focus the innovation for the brand and really trust your team because we see um, all sorts of things come out of consumer testing and some of those things are valuable and some of those are not. I'm here with Sebastian Nava, chef and R&D innovator. Sebastian, what, what's a range of time that you've seen in your experience from starting with a, a, a concept from scratch, ideation, to get it out to consumer shelves. What do you think is a realistic time frame for a lot of companies in this business? I'm probably a really terrible person to ask. Um, we've done as little as five or six months at Boulder Brands. And, um, you know, those are pretty intense. And there's definitely risks associated with those kind of timelines. Um, I think, you know, nice for us is about a year. Um, nice for most people is probably a year and a half. <laughs> um, it, it depends on your size and um, how long it's going to take you to get through your process. But um, we just launched, I think it's 11 new SKUs within Walmart for Gardein. And uh, we did most of that on a six-month timeline, which um, is just mind-blowing. Complete credit to the team and um, everyone involved because they really worked their hard outs hearts out and they really uh, did some fantastic things. And one of those products is our new uh, pea protein, uh, Gardein. So there's a lot of different proteins that are becoming popular um, as people are getting away from soy and looking for alternatives. And um, so in that since six months window, we launched our new pea protein platform and it's a fantastic product. So we did some of your kind of uh, down the middle of the road things. We have like a crispy nugget that's kind of like a, um, a chicken nugget, if you will. And, um, but we also have a Nashville hot chicken in there. Mm. And we have a Georgia Chipotle wing um, and some other really fun I'm stuff. I'm getting hungry. That's yeah. a, I haven't heard of that before. That sounds like a neat uh, flavor combination. Yeah, so they're really fantastic. I think they're just hitting store shelves now. got to go look for them. Um, so you've talked about some successes you've been proud of and feel free to share more, but any failures that you want to talk about that would be illustrative for our listeners? That's a 
really great question. Um, I'm all about learning from failure. You know, most of our learning experiences come through failure, so it's really important to talk about. Um, we launched a line of uh, burritos for Evol that we kind of call, called, um, internally anyway, they were culinary fusion burritos. And so we did a barbecue pulled pork burrito. There was a chicken tikka masala, um, a chicken teriyaki, and a fourth flavor that uh, I'm blanking on right now. There were um, some challenges in that uh, in in that timeline, and actually budgeting constraints around um, how many trials we could afford, and uh, because of the technology involved, because of the unique um, flavor profiles, there were a lot more technical challenges than we anticipated. So if you look at most burritos, right, they're going to be beans, rice, cheese, meat. And that's what the burrito making equipment is designed for. That's what the plant knows how to do. When you start taking out the beans, <laughs> the rice, the cheese, um, if you add in a bunch of frozen ingredients, which is very different from what they're working with, all of a sudden the consistency, consistency changes really dramatically. It, it becomes really challenging just from a processing so, perspective. So it worked at the bench, but not at scale? Exactly, exactly. And had we had the budget to keep testing that and the timeline to keep testing that, um, I think we could have gotten to a much better product that um, would have done better on the shelf. But um, we didn't. And, um, you know, I, I guess the question ultimately is, did we do the best we could for that product? You know, maybe not, but did we do the best we could for the business at that time because we hit the budget and um, those sorts of things? Then, you know, perhaps we succeeded on that level. Um, but I think there was definitely growth opportunity within the product itself. What Do you have any words of wisdom for, for companies in this business who just struggle to innovate? And we read a lot about particularly the larger companies yeah. who – who need to innovate more quickly to please their shareholders. Any, any words of wisdom? Absolutely. I think you really have to kind of break your mold. You have to just forget everything you think you know and start from scratch. Uh, bring in new blood. Bring in external experts. Um, go out, adventure, try new things. And, um, you know, give up on the things that haven't worked in the past. I know a lot of companies that I um, think there's value in something and they've tried it and it keeps coming up and coming up again. And all of a sudden in terms of innovation, there's nothing new. It's all ideas they've been recycling, trying to figure out how to make it work. And they get one or two a year, but um, that whole innovation cycle is never completely wiped away and started from scratch. And this industry moves so fast that you have to at some point say, Forget everything we thought we knew. Let's rediscover ourselves all over again. And you really need to listen to the people within your organization. Um, really take the time to listen to your R&D team um, because often they're the ones that are most passionate about food and most intuitive in terms of what's going on in the marketplace and um, that they really see what's out there. And so instead of going from this, um, sometimes there's kind of like a golden palette perspective where if the CEO doesn't like the taste of something, then it's never going to be launched um, to really kind of bottom up innovation 
And I think that um, they'll find a lot of value there, especially with so many millennials really starting to um, fill out our companies from a work workforce perspective. Mm. So you talked a little bit about how companies can innovate. If people are just getting started in this business mm-hmm. as a, as a research chef or a product developer, what words of advice do you have for individuals? You really want to harness your creative um, kind of fountain, as you will. Um, you want to be able to focus those creative energies that you have and say, oh, I've got all these fantastic ideas, and then figure out how to put the business perspective on it and how to really deliver value through that innovation. And sometimes um, it's not the most innovative product from a flavor perspective or a format perspective, but sometimes it's innovative in terms of how we're delivering that value. And it's important to um, find motivation in that as well and get excited by that. It's a different type of creativity. Um, so I'm, for me, really, anyway, I think it's really about how do I harness all this beautiful, like creative energy that I have and really focus it towards a business? Um, because not just because I want to, I want the business to do well, right? Of course I want the business to do well, but, um, when the business is doing well, I know that our consumers are happy because that's the ultimate for me is how do we really please people that are looking for something new, that um, are looking for ways to feed their children um, and for ways to make themselves healthier. Mm-hmm. And so for me, that's the real metric. Of, um, it doesn't come down to dollars. It doesn't come down to the stock price. It comes down to our consumers. Mm-hmm. Make, make them happy and the financial success will follow. Absolutely. Absolutely. And those are intertwined. Yeah. And personal career success as well. So Sebastian, before we go into wrap up, any, any additional topics you'd like to touch on? Well, I'd love to tell you about my new venture. Great. Fantastic. So I talked a lot about scale, um, throughout my career and how I've been trying to harness that. Now I'm going backwards. And part of that is because, um, as I've seen all these big companies, that are trying to do new and innovative things, one of the things that they're doing to, to look for their sources of inspiration are look at really tiny guys and, and look at people that are doing uh, unique and interesting things in, in far-off places. And so uh, I'm actually opening my own restaurant, and um, it's a pizza concept, so that's your, your, fam- your familiar platform, right? And uh, what we're doing is we're actually exclusively going to be using heirloom wheat, that we're buying from, uh, from family farmers and from milling operations that are owned by those farmers. And, um, you know, there's a lot of benefits to heirloom wheat. It's a lot more digestible. Um, it's a lot better for the environment. Um, there's, there's a huge abundance of, um, of benefits that we're starting to see from this kind of agriculture. And to be able to support a farmer is really, really cool, right? We're doing that. We're going to buy our wheat exclusively from them. And most of that wheat's grown here in Colorado or in Kansas. And then um, we're going to be doing, instead of your chicken wings and your mozzarella sticks, we're going to be doing seasonal vegetable sides. You know, we'll have roasted sweet potatoes and broccolini and those sorts of things. So you're not just doing carbs on carbs. And uh, we'll have fresh salads, everything made in-house. And uh, we'll be offering, of course, gluten-free options vegan options, um, and all those sorts of things. 
So trying to really drive for me, what is my own vision of innovation and how do I bring that to my own consumers and hopefully, um, you know, fuel a movement that I'm already seeing in this space of, of heritage heirloom grains um, that are grown here in the country. Mm, it sounds terrific. Do you have a name for the restaurant? Heritage Pizza. Heritage Pizza. Yeah, going to be in Erie, Colorado. Old Town Erie, very kind of community vibe. And opening date? To be determined. <laughs> Got to work through some technical issues. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I imagine there, there are going to be some issues with the flour and dealing with the crust and things like that you got to work through. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Not to mention financing and uh, really my concern is getting the doors open, <laughs> right? <laughs> I've run plenty of restaurants before. I know how that goes. I've helped people to make their restaurants profitable. Once I can get the doors open, I think I'll be okay. <laughs> it's just getting to that point. Well, we wish you luck on your new venture. Thank you so much. Can't, can't wait to try the pizza. Yeah, we'll have you out. I want to thank my guests today, Sebastian Nava, chef and R&D innovator. Sebastian, thanks so much for being on the podcast. You're welcome. This podcast is produced for informational purposes and does not constitute any scientific, legal, or medical advice. The views and opinions expressed by guests of this podcast are those of the guest alone and do not necessarily reflect the opinions and positions of the host or any other entity or organization. Listeners are encouraged to listen with an open mind and form opinions of their own. Thanks for listening to C2C, where we cover innovation in the food and CPG business from conception to consumption. Just type the letters C-T-O-C, no spaces, to find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbeam, and Google Play.